Welcome back to Administrative Static, and and we're joined uh, by our colleague, uh, Dan Kelly, who uh, is uh, uh, a new addition, I think we can still say. A newish, sure. To to NCLA. Still has the new car smell, you know. And and I I thought it would be interesting uh, that, uh, Dan, you you were a judge, Mm -hmm. right? A a justice of the the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Yeah, Yeah. uh, that's right. Before, and so, uh, and... I know senior litigation counsel is kind of a come down from that, but, uh, (laughs) but we're... We're excited to have you on the team. and uh, But as Cliff Clavin used to say, interesting fact there, Normie, um, <laughs> in Tetratech. It's a uh, little-known fact. Case, that, uh, <laughs> Justice Kelly was involved in getting rid of the state Chevron deference yeah. um, as a ruling rather than as, a, as an advocate. Um, and we have the relentless uh, oral argument next week. Uh, and Roman Martinez of Latham Watkins will be arguing that. And um, but we'll we'll all be there. But I thought it might be fun to just say, well, look, it, what questions might the justices ask? So uh, we've talked about the relentless case before. It's uh, one of our fishing clients, and um, they've been made to pay for these at sea monitors by the agencies, although the statute doesn't say that. So they have relied um, in almost all, both here and in Loper Bright, on Chevron, which is the presumption that if if a statute is um, ambiguous, the court has to defer to the reasonable um, uh, definition of uh, of the agency. So uh, we're going to be arguing that next week. Uh, the case of Chevron was decided in 1984, so the the justice are going to be, and although they haven't mentioned it till 2016, um, I forget what case it was in 2016 they mentioned it in, but that was the last time. And um, so the real question is going to be, they've only taken the question, should Chevron continue to exist, basically? I'm shortening it up. Yeah. Um, so uh, Judge Kelly now, Justice Kelly, um, what, what kind of questions might they ask on this uh Going forward. Sure. Well, let me first say that um, I'm happy to be aboard. And whether it's justice or senior litigation counsel, I'll answer to pretty much any title at all. And, and <laughs> call me anything. Don't call me late uh, to dinner. That's exactly right. So I think one of the, um, one of the most interesting lines of questioning that the uh, court might engage in will be to explore what it is that um, the Chevron requires them to defer to. Right? So... Um, so we argue that uh, Chevron requires deference to a determination of what the law says. The government, however, says, look, you're not, you're not deferring to a legal decision. You're default, uh, de- deferring to a policy decision. So Chevron actually um, vindicates the separation of powers by keeping the court out of political arguments. Um, and so I think uh, some of their questioning might go to that, because that really is the foundation for the government's whole case, um, and, and you know, and if this is about policy considerations, why the courts obviously have no uh, have no responsibility or authority in that area. So I think they uh, they'll they'll look at that because, and, and part of this is suggested by the very formulation of the Chevron def, uh, deference question itself. So you go through that familiar two step process. So the question is, what is it you're doing? If you uh, if you go beyond step one, because step one says that you have to exhaust all of your disambiguation tools, 
And all your statutory interpretation toolkit. That's right, exactly. So the question is, if you if you exhaust that toolkit, and there is still ambiguity remaining, and you decide the question, what does the statute require? What are you basing that that decision on? Your toolkit is already proven insufficient to answer the question. And so, what is it you're doing as a court? if you then take it upon yourself to answer that question. So I think there's going to be a fair amount of uh, questioning that goes to that. And then I think, you know, we might get into uh, a little bit of how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. And, and, and this is it, because the government has said outright, blatantly, that um, interpretation is policymaking. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, that, and that's the foundation of their whole position is that they're engaging in policy-making decisions, not, uh, not really legal determinations of what a statute requires. So, um, so the question is, I think it comes down to this. When you, um, how certain do you have to be as a member of the judiciary in your determination of what a law requires, right? Because there, there are a lot of circumstances where you come to the end of the road and you're like, well, I think, I think this is the best reading of the statute, um, and and we're going to give it that reason. I'm not 100% sure, but that's my best understanding of it, right? And we do that all the time outside of the Chevron context. Um, so there are, uh, there are not that many questions that will reach the court of last resort where the answer is obvious, right? There are always, you're always ever going to get the hard cases. So, uh, so the question is, do you have to be 100% sure before you say there's no ambiguity? Is it 65%? Is it 50.1%? What is the threshold beyond which you can say, I have discerned the, uh, the reading of this statute that will apply in this case? Because again, what we're doing is we are looking at the, um, at the work product of a bunch of fallible human beings in the legislature, right? And they get together and they write, as a committee, a piece of legislation. And well, you know, oftentimes um, a committee is not the best way to develop a piece of writing that is internally and inherently consistent. And sharp and clear. And sharp and clear. So uh, one of the other questions I, th- I think, um, I don't know how to, how to uh, put this, but it does, it does strike me that if, if all interpretation is policymaking, then everything the court does, it interprets all the time. And so I guess the, the, the question then, be, and it also seems to me that there may be, and tell me if I'm right, I think there may be questions, well, what was the whole originalist textualist project that the court's been engaged in over the last 20 years? It was to get out of policymaking. Yes. They have said that textualism and originalism takes them out of policymaking. Um, so I think there's some tension there with the government's position and this position of interpretation being policymaking and basically what the court's been trying to do as far as I can see for 20 years. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, and I think they're going to have uh, the composition of this court is going to have a natural aversion, I think, um, to anything that would suggest that what they have to do in resolving a case is decide upon what the policy should be rather than simply deciding what does the law require in this case. So I, I, I think there's going to be a fair amount of questioning along those lines. I think another line that, that, that's going to be interesting uh, is going to involve 
who the decision maker is and who the decision maker ought to be. So Chevron, what that does functionally is if you accept the premise that what the uh, what Chevron requires is to defer to a legal interpretation by the administrative agency, what you're saying in effect is that one of the parties to the litigation gets to act as the judge. And the question is, is that consistent with Fifth Amendment due process uh, requirements that require a fair and independent adjudicator of the law. And so when you, uh, and, and this is, I think, something that uh, regulated entities, individuals experience at a deep gut level. Every time they walk into court, they see the administrative agency on the other side of the courtroom and they present their case to the judge, right? And they say, judge, um, this is what the law says and this is the, the way you must determine it. And uh, the opposing party, the administrative agency, it doesn't really respond to that substantively so much as much as they say, well, judge, this is our view of what the law requires and you need to defer to that. We get to decide what it means. And then the person, when they, when they uh, watch the judge's reaction and the judge says, yeah, you're right, I'm just going to let you, the other party, determine what the law means, they're sitting there thinking, well, where's my due process? So I think a fair amount of the questions that the court will look at is, can we allow an, uh, a party to the case to be the decider of what the law requires consistently with the, um, uh, with the standard that we've set for a very long time that the due process uh, clause requires a fair and independent and unbiased adjudicator of the law? And, you know, your, your question there reminds me, uh, many of our, if the Wall Street Journal had an article by Eugene Scalia yesterday, uh, which is January 10th. And uh, in the January 10th Wall Street Journal, in the op-ed, he talks about how much he loved Chevron deference when he was uh, labor, when he was the secretary of labor. But he also said that a lot of the decision making of who's making the decisions is not the secretary of labor, is not anybody we would think of if you're going to do policy. These are the guys who've been appointed and then also confirmed by the Senate. It's like some low-level guy somewhere making these decisions, and it isn't. It really is unelected bureaucrats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was. I, you know, I had not put, I had not considered that because uh, yeah. I've never worked in government and I had no idea exactly what it was yeah. like. Well, yeah, that I, was I a, knew some of these people at the CPSC. You don't want them writing laws. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, I, I thought, uh, I thought Eugene Scalia's insight was really useful because it, it, it puts in a real world context what's actually happening when this occurs. It's not just that we don't all know. Uh, you know, not everybody in the United States knows who the secretary is that is charged with making those decisions. It's somebody that maybe the secretary doesn't even know their name, right? Yeah. They're so deeply down in the bowels of that administrative agency, there's no possibility of democratic accountability for the decisions that are being made there. So we only have about a, a little, uh, only about 40 seconds left. What question do you, would you really like them to ask? I'd really like him to ask uh, whether Article 3 requires that the decisions of law belong exclusively uh, to uh, the judicial branch. And then, and then just press them on that. That is the foundational question. It is a categorical question. Um, and, a, and a lot of the uh, jurisprudence we've seen over the years in this area as in others has been a process of pragmatism. Uh, and what I want to get back to is categorical decisions. All right. Well, I 
I found that a very fun segment. Thanks for being on. It's a pleasure. Well, appreciate it, Dan. See you next week, everyone. <laughs>